we have we have just the greatest joy being here and uh you know it's uh so many blasts from the past you know some people look different some people look the same and uh some people it's this uh you know i can't recognize and maybe you can't recognize me but time is awesome don't you love time three people in the room love time you know when you get older you get wiser right and i just uh i just just have so many memories uh, and thinking of coming here. And I just really want to say thank you to Marty and Chris Fuquay. They have been our spiritual parents while we were here uh, in uh, L.A. And my physical par- parents are here as well. And so it's great to have kind of the whole, the parent crew together here. Michael and Jack here in the house. And, uh, you know, Marty and Chris uh, helped us uh, in a lot of different ways uh, when Arlene and I were dating and uh, when we got married, Marty uh, performed uh, our wedding. And there's a nice picture right there. Uh, they still look great today, don't they? I mean, Marty and Chris, you guys are timeless. I love it. And uh, we're staying uh, with them and just having a blast. Thank you so much for always taking care of us. Marty, you remember that? That's, that's, that's your sailor suit right there. That's like the captain of the ship. And that's what Marty is. It's awesome. Awesome. A lot of good memories. So, today, uh, a few thoughts to share with you uh, about money. You guys ready to talk a little bit about money? We're going to call it Be Rich. Be Rich, not Get Rich. That's a class that's offered down the road uh, during the week. I'm not giving that one. But it's today, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about money. And you can be opening your Bibles at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You know, it's uh, tax season. Hopefully you got that in on time. I'm glad seven of you did. That's awesome. Uh, It's the first quarter of the year. I don't know if you know this, but April is the Financial Literacy Awareness Month. You guys knew that, right? Because we're all financially aware. I didn't know it either. Uh, Summer travel plans, vacation. uh, We got camps for kids already. The fundraisers. We just had five bake sales. Uh, over the last three months in New York City. And, uh, you know, we're just inundating our congregation with all kinds of sugar. Uh, but in order to raise money for our kids to go to camp. And uh, on the last bake sale, uh, for, we're a group about 300. We raised over $1,000 just from cookies. And uh, so we're sending a lot of kids to camp and excited about that. And special contribution. Uh, so a lot of things going on about money. So we figured this is an appropriate thing to talk about. Now, the world has a lot to say about money. Isn't that right? What are some of the quotes that we hear when it comes to money? And you just raise your hand and I'll I'll call out on you. Let's see. What what do we hear? Yeah. Mo money, mo problems. problems. Thank you for quoting uh, one of the greatest rappers of our time. Yeah. Green is good. Greed. On Wall Street. Greed is good. Right? Ain't no such thing as a free lunch, all right? This room ever heard any quotes on money? Yes. Buy low, sell high, all right? All right, talk to her when you make your stock investment here, yeah? Easy come, easy go, yeah? Uh huh. Money is evil? All right, okay, yeah? Money makes the world go around, yeah. Put your money where your mouth is. Whoa. All right. Last one. Yeah. Give me the money. Show me the money. Right. A lot of quotes. You ever heard money is power? Get rich or die trying. Cash is king. 
Money talks. You ever heard this one? Whoever dies with the most toys wins. Which is ironic. Some people have answered that with, whoever dies with the most toys is still dead. An interesting observation. So the world has a lot of opinions about money. And so the church, we can't afford to be silent on it. And Jesus certainly wasn't. Over 80% of Jesus' teachings either directly or indirectly about money. He talked about buying fields, building towers, fair wages, money for taxes, money for God. And the whole New Testament is no different. So we're going to read together here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We're going to stop there. We're going to pull three questions from this text to talk about in today's lesson. You know, the very beginning of that, if you're looking at verse 17, uh, Paul, writing to his protege, Timothy, uh, talks about commanding the rich. So the first question that we're going to deal with today is, who is rich? Again, in the second part, he goes on, he starts talking about where we put our hope. So the second thing we're going to zero in on is where is hope? Who is rich? Where is hope? And then finally, at the end, Paul starts talking about the future. What's coming down the pike? So number three, what is it for? What is coming? Who is rich? Where is hope? And what is it for? Let's deal with point number one. Who is rich? And the crowd says, not me. You know, we read that passage. Command those who are rich. We're like, man, those rich you better listen up. Whoa. God is making an exclamation point right there. All right. Okay, let me ask you a question. Let's talk about this for a minute. And just let me know if you want me to switch to the handheld. No? All right, we're good. How much do you feel like it takes for someone to be rich? All right? I want to hear what you guys think. Raise your hand. Tell me, what do you think it takes for someone to be rich? How much money are we talking about here? What do you think? 15 grand a year? I love it. All right? Throw out a figure. You don't have to raise your hand. How much? A million. 250 million? 250,000? Couple million? No one's going higher? You, want, you don't want a billion dollars? The Powerball in January was, was 1.5 billion. I'm not going to ask who played. Very low odds there. But, you know, people have fun with that. Well, they did a, a big Gallup poll across the United States and tried to ask people the same question. What do you think it takes to be rich? And here's what they found. For people that made thirty to $35,000 a year, they felt like to be rich, you needed to make $75,000. They asked people who made $50,000, you know, what does it take to be rich? And they answered $100,000. You see a pattern here? They asked people who made 100000 a household making 100000 a year, and they said, well, you've got to have at least $200,000 a year in order to be rich. And it goes on from there. If you ask someone that makes $500 million a year, what do you think they said you need to be rich? You've got to have a billion bucks. 
Isn't that crazy? It's never enough. And so on and so forth. Now, looking at this, what people say it takes to be rich. What if I told you that if your household income was $40,000 a year, then you would be in the top 4% wage earners on the planet. Would it surprise you? That you and the people in your home and all the money you make added together in a year, if it adds up to about $40,000, top 4% in the world. Now, if you made just 8000 more, that bumps you up to the top 1%. You know, you hear thing, you know, Wall Street, the top 1%. You don't think you're in that, do you? You know, a lot of us in this room are rich. You say, no, no, I'm not. I don't make that much. But even if you, if you don't make that much, you make maybe 10 to 15K less a year. You're still in the 90th percentile compared to the world. So many of us are rich. You say, no, John, you haven't seen my budget sheet. Okay. You still need convincing. Most of us have a cell phone, right? There's actually more cell phones on the planet than there are toothbrushes. Is a true stat. So most of us have cell phones, and you have a data plan, and you have access to the internet, and you're using, maybe some of us even now, are using your Bible app that you paid money for on your data plan that you paid money for on your phone that you paid money for, and you can instantaneously get on the phone with someone thousands of miles away and start talking, and they will hear you. Pretty incredible, right? A lot of you came here in a transportation machine that we call a vehicle, Right? A car. All right. And some of you have really nice cars and some of you will actually go out to a place after church where you can sit down and say, I would like fresh food. And really, maybe within half an hour or less, depending where you go, you're going to get a hot plate of fresh food right in front of you. Unbelievable. Right. Others will go home and get food out of a device that keeps your food cold so that it will not go bad. So you can have it for later. And afterwards, you'll wash your hands in a sink that has both cold and hot water. Oh, my goodness. See, these luxuries put you in a lonely category in the globe. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm trying to convince you you're rich. You are rich. You still don't believe me? Let me show you a picture. This is on 14th Street. And 9th Avenue in New York City. Can you see what that is? That is a good looking piece of meat right there. I apologize for the vegans in the room. I, I enjoy a good steak. And it was sitting there. And this is New York City. People are walking by back and forth. Uh, you know, all kinds of people, rich and poor and homeless. And no one's touching it. I thought, this is fascinating. I got to take a picture and watch what happens. And it just sat there. And no one touched it. And I got a close-in view. It's got a side of like potatoes or gratin or something like that. It's like a full, uneaten, beautiful piece of thick steak. Just sitting on there. Sitting on the ground. You ever see money on the ground? You know, I saw money on a bus seat in New York. And I started thinking about all the rear ends that sat in that seat. I even went up close, took a picture, thought about taking it. You think I took it? Do you take it? Okay, we're split. There's not just coin money on the ground. There's paper money on the ground. There's an elevator in New York City. I got a close up. That's a dollar bill right there. A friend of mine found 160 bucks in 20s rolled up on the ground one time. 
Yeah, money all over the ground. Money all over the ground. Now, do you see the money here? All right, let me get a close up. That's also in the bus. You want that one? Oh, yeah. Now the people that pick up money are like, I don't know. That's New York, some kind of disease on that. I don't know if I want to touch it. Money on the ground. What if I told a little boy in a place like Monrovia, Liberia, one of the poorest places in the world. What if I I told him that there is a place on this planet where there is money all over the ground? I mean, just coins and even some paper money sometimes. And what if I told you that sometimes the money is there and people don't take it? What do you think a little boy is going to say? You are a liar from the United States. And I heard about you guys. You guys lie. No way. You're talking about heaven. There's no money on the streets. That's what people tell stories and myths about. And yet, that's where we live. New York City has more homeless people per capita than any place in the nation. It's actually only number two behind Manila in the world. Most people without shelter. And, you know, we in the church, we do our best to serve those in need. Arlene, my wife, uh, she often will pack extra granola bars in her purse and uh, give it out to different people as we walk on the street. And she gave it out to one lady uh, who was asking for help and food. And uh, she handed her the granola bar and the woman took it and she started reading the ingredients. And she says, "Uh -uh, I can't eat this and gave it back. We have calorie conscious homeless people in New York City. Gluten-free, vegan, you name it, we got it. See, who is rich? We are rich. We are a rich nation. We are a rich church. And this is where it gets dangerous. Point number two, where is hope? Where is hope? I have bad news for everyone today. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but there is an epidemic sweeping the nation right now. I'm not talking about Zika or West Nile or something you can get from a mosquito. I'm talking about affluenza. Affluenza. It's an insidious, highly contagious disease. And once infected, people become infatuated with wealth. It consumes their desire. All they want is to be affluent, to have stuff, money. And it eats up all the hope inside of them. Now, I got a case of affluenza a few years back. Can I tell you a little story? You guys with me here? All right. Any musicians in the room? All right. Okay. A few of us. We appreciate, for those of us that aren't musicians, people that play music. And I'm a wannabe musician. I, I like to uh, play guitar. And uh, I'm not a musician like my little brother who was up here earlier just rocking it. I love to hear him sing and lead us in worship. Uh, but I have a guitar, and I've owned three guitars, three acoustic guitars in my life, all right? This is the first one. Looks pretty nice, right? Yeah, that's an Oscar Schmidt, all right? And I bought that baby in 1992, all right? Saved my money, paid 125 bucks for this new guitar. And uh, this was a best friend in some very lonely times in my life, all right? Uh, music that brought me peace, like David played the, the harp, you know? It, it soothed me when I was feeling upset about things and was a really good friend. And after a few years, uh, it kind of got old. And even though I had all this attachment to it, I, I broke ways, I sold it, I kept it in mint condition. And then I added a little bit more money. In the year 2000, uh, I bought myself a tack of mine. Actually, John, how do I pronounce it? Tacamini. Okay, here we go. Tacamini. 
Takamini. Thank you, John. I don't even know how to pronounce it. That was such a fancy guitar at the time for me. And I uh, paid about $400 for it. Loved that thing and played it all the time and uh, got better as a guitar player. I took better care of it. And that is when I even came into the church. So I brought that guitar with me and played spiritual music on this guitar. And then I got old. I got bored of it. And it was time to do the biggest upgrade of my life. John, what did I buy? I bought a Taylor. That's like the Ferrari of guitars. Paid about twice as much for it. Love this thing. And this is the guitar I have today. I took this guitar with me. Uh, not many things we took from L.A. to New York City, trying to compress your life into a smaller amount of square feet. But uh, this thing came, and at one point I told my wife, I said, listen, I could lose pretty much anything in here. We were debating about whether we should get renter's insurance. I said, no, nah, we don't need it. It's an extra expense. She's like, but there's stuff. And, they'll... and so we finally talked about it. I said, all I need is my guitar. It's all I need. Everything else, you know, I've got back up in the cloud. I'm okay. The information, pictures, we'll figure it out. And, you know, I eventually lost that debate. But I remember getting really tight with it. Gorgeous piece of instrumentation. Uh, people would like to borrow it or play with it, uh, like the Takamini or the Schmidt. And I would say no. Um, did you wash your hands? You know, I, I'd be a little bit more possessive of it. That was my precious. And uh, I got an extra padded case for it. And one day I played it at church. And after church, I was, I was down here talking to someone. And it was on a, a guitar holder up here. And I was facing that way. And all of a sudden, in the middle of my conversation, I heard what sounded like beautiful handcrafted wood dropping on the floor. And sure enough, I turned around and there was my tailor lying on the ground. It had fallen a bigger stage than this, maybe four or five feet off the ground. Boom. And it was just laying there lifeless. So I kneel down, pick up my guitar, checking for wounds. And all the guys that are like in the crew that help set up are like huddling around and said, hey, guys. And they're like, we don't know what happened. We're so sorry. And I'm like, it's okay. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I turn around and on the bottom is a dent. Oh, and my heart sank. But you know, it was no one's fault. It was an accident. And I realized something in that moment. My hope had gotten tied up in a thing. And it exposed how sentimental I had gotten and attached to this lifeless thing, this piece of wood with wires in it. And I started thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm actually glad that it dropped on the ground and it has a dent in it. I can't sell it for full value because it exposed that I got way too close to this thing. You know, we got to be careful about how attached we get to stuff because we start wanting more of it. We want better stuff. We want smaller or faster or more shiny. And we love the people that have a lot of it. Psalm 49 says, do not be overawed when others grow rich. Because we get overawed. We watch reality TV shows up and down. We love to watch the rich. Who are their friends? Who do they talk to? What toothpaste do they use? What do they eat cereal-wise? I mean, we get all up in their business. We want their celebrity. We get overawed. Look, they're so carefree. Money solves all the problems, right? So what do we do? We work more to have more, to make more, 
And someone always has more than us. So the hope for us to have more never ends. And it's attached and tethered to this hope that we have that eventually we're going to get enough to solve our problems. But usually in the end, all that more actually leads to less of the important stuff. Because we work ourselves silly. And then we have less time to be with the people that we love. We have less investing in God, less investing in our spiritual life, less investing in the church. Affluenza is a poison. You guys with me? J. Paul Getty had affluenza. Fortune magazine named him the richest living American in the 50s. He's a Guinness Book of World Record holder in 1966 for the world's richest private citizen. He was a billionaire. And actually, when he was 24 years old, he got his first million dollars. Guys, that was 1916. Now, if you're a millionaire and you put all that money into one dollar bills and you stacked it up, it'd be about seven feet high. All right. If you're a millionaire, if you are a billionaire, you know how high we get? It's as high as the Empire State Building. Almost 90 stories high of $1 bills. That's a lot of money, right? So you think million and then you jump to billion. That jumps up quite a bit. One of the quotes that he's uh, remembered as saying, if you can actually count your money, then you're not rich. Okay, Mr. Affluenza. Tell us more. Tell us more, a wise one. He said he was big into oil. And one of the things he said, he was quoting Jesus and kind of mocking it. He says, well, the meek shall inherit the earth, but not its mineral rights. Because I'm going to buy those. He was intense about his money. He had dial locks on his home phone. Paranoid. Someone's going to spend a lot of money on a long distance phone call. He actually had pay phones in his living room. If you want to make a call, you got to pay for it. One time his grandson was kidnapped. And they had a ransom for $17 million. And it got up to grandfather. And grandfather said, no way. I'm not paying it. And so they sent a lock of hair. And they said, more is going to come if you don't pay. He still refused. And then an ear came. And he still refused. And he finally settled at $2.2 million for the ransom because that's the maximum amount that could be tax deductible. And then the family came to thank him. For ransoming and getting back the grandson, and he refused to talk to the grandson, blaming him for losing his money. He was married and divorced five times, and he's quoted as saying near the end of his life, a lasting relationship with a woman is only possible if you're a business failure. In other words, you can't be successful and have a family and do it right. But then there's regret. And then you start realizing that life's running out. And this is one of the last things he said. I hate to be a failure. I hate and regret the failure of my marriages. I would gladly give all my millions for just one lasting marital success. And the Ecclesiastes writer writes, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful of affluenza. 
Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Let's continue exploring the Bible and what it says about money, how it teaches us to avoid the pitfalls of wealth. And I'm going to say this a couple of times today. It doesn't mean that I don't think you should have a lot of money. In fact, I pray you make a whole lot of money so you can give a whole lot away. Luke chapter 12. Turn with me. You know, affluenza has been a killer since the beginning of time. It took Adam and Eve out of the garden. It cost Moses the promised land. And Jesus talked about it constantly. It is the number one contender for your hearts. And Jesus here responds to an argument in the crowd about greed in Luke chapter 12. And Jesus tells a parable, which is a a short fictional story that parallels real life and usually has a really cool surprise ending. And he says in verse 15, Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. We'll stop there. In verse 16 and 17, Jesus sets up this parable with a guy who's rich. He's got some extra stuff. And he he comes to this crisis in his life. I have nowhere to put all my stuff. The bank's not big enough. What am I going to do? And the world's tiniest violin starts playing. Oh, I'm so sorry. Where are you going to put all your money? Right. We don't have a lot of sympathy. And I think Jesus, as he's talking to a mostly blue collar crowd, is just revving them up, getting them all fired up. They're like, I don't like this guy. All right. But but there's some good here because, you know, he's building, you know, the the bigger barns. And we remember Joseph who built barns during the feast so that during the famine they would have extra. And so maybe there's there's something there. And he starts telling the story that he's going to be able to take life easy because he's going to be able to store all his stuff. And if we were to stop there, you could say, hey, not a bad lesson in savings, right? Hey, you got to save money, you got to save up for the future, take care of yourself, take care of your family, right? But this is where the surprise comes in. Jesus says, well, God will say, you fool. Huh? I thought he was doing a good job. Man, I want to be like him. I'm a little envious of him, but maybe he's doing a good job. But no, because his life's going to be demanded from him. He's going to have no one and not, no way to enjoy all that wealth, right? That's the surprise ending. And we really can relate here to the nerve that Jesus touched 2,000 years ago. Because there's an illusory uh, correlation that happens between wealth and time. Right. Here's what we think. We think, oh, I'm not going to die. I've got so much wealth to enjoy. But I've got at least 20 more years because I just bought a home. We start to correlate the wealth and the money that we have with the time that we have. We start expanding. We say, well, I got my five-year plan. I got my 10-year plan. I got my 20-year plan. And sooner or later, we start to forget that God has a plan. You know, our agenda sometimes says, after 20 years, then I'll be able to give more to God. 
Then I'll be able to give a really big special missions contribution check. Then I'll be able to go out and help all the charity. But right now it's just tough. I won't be able to do it until X, Y, and Z happens. And affluenza has snuck in. We've lived under the assumption that all this wealth is for us. But then when the opportunity is gone and either the wealth is gone or we pass on, then who's going to get what we saved up for? Somebody else, not us. Not because we're generous, but because we're dead. You know, sometimes we can get caught up thinking that there's this imaginary amount that's going to solve our problems. Right. The wealth of the rich in Proverbs 18 says it's like a fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. And so we start to put our hope in our wealth, in our investment plan, in our 401k, in the future, in the retirement, that we're going to be all right. And if we just work a little more and make a little more, then we're going to be fine. And I can guarantee the safety of my family now and in the future. Is that really possible? Can you guarantee the safety of your family with wealth? Is there a certain amount that you can make that can make that happen? No, it's not possible. So don't be dismayed. Psalm 49 in verse 16. When the wicked grow rich and their homes become ever more splendid. For when they die, they take nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them into the grave. And sometimes you heard people quoted saying, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You know, when you're going to a funeral, you don't see a whole bunch of equipment and furniture going with them. It's going to be buried with them. You don't, you don't see that, right? Because you can't take it with you. You can only send it ahead. You know, our hope gets severely misplaced. And I want you to imagine with me just for a moment that you're getting up tomorrow morning, Monday morning, and you're getting ready to go to work or go to school, and you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Anybody with me? You ever been there? We just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Bad things are happening, right? You spill coffee on your pants, and those are your favorite Monday pants, and they're not. it's not going to happen. And then you change your pants, and you bend over to pick something up, and you hear the rip, right? And then you got to take, and you, things are going wrong, and kids are throwing up, and people are sick. And I mean, just one of those mornings right. where you roll into work or rolling school on money. How you doing? It's one of those days. I imagine you're in one of those days, right? And, and you know, for those of us that drive in LA, which is like everybody, um, you know, you're in your car and you're on your way to wherever you're going. And you know, you're just trying to calm down. So many things are happening. Someone called you with bad news. Someone texted you with bad news. You almost got in a crash because when you looked at the text, you didn't look ahead and you almost went into somebody, all kinds of things. And then you're, you're already in the red. But then you get pushed over because someone in the lane next to you is is doing some makeup or whatever in the mirror and on their phone. And they just curve right into you and you barely inch away to avoid collision. They cut you off and you're like, I'm not a Christian right now. I just want to say some stuff and get out of this car. So you have to pull over because you're just steaming angry. You don't know what to do. And you get a phone call and you don't know who it is. You don't recognize the number. We say, well, what can get worse? So you answer it and says, hey, this is bank so-and-so. Are you this person? And they say your name. Is this your social security number? Yes, it is. What's going on? Well, did you have a relationship or did you know this person? They named a name. It was a relative of yours. And you say, yeah, I did. I didn't have a great relationship and I didn't really know what's going on. Well, they just died and they left you a sizable fortune. Five hundred million dollars. 
And you're like, wait a minute, is this real? And they're like, well, we've identified you and we've confirmed it. So we're going to wire transfer. And you look at your bank and I have $500 million in my bank account. Let me ask you a question. Does your attitude change? Because you were angry 30 seconds ago. You were ready to throw in the towel on Christianity because you just wanted to do some damage to somebody. Does your attitude change? I mean, all of a sudden you feel lighter, all the problems, the ripped pants, the coffee, the makeup. It all just kind of washes away and you start driving and you're just floating on air. Everything is good. Someone cuts you off. Go right ahead. That's fine. It's fine. Get to work. You're getting yelled at. No problem. I'm cool. Why? Why does everything in us change because of some money? Because your hope shifted. And your hope's wrapped up in wealth. And you say, what? What? No rational person would not feel that way. All right. Well, then what does that say about us? Because when we had hard times financially, does our faith also tank? Or when things go well in our lives financially, do we say, oh, I'm really faithful right now? And we got to question where we're at. Is God our hope or are we wrapped up in wealth? It needs to be in God. You can't serve two masters. And I think for some of us, the decision today is going to have to be to get open about our personal finances and just start to get some help from spiritual people, advisors in our life. I know it's scary. I know you're embarrassed about some of the things you've been spending money on, but it's time. Some of us are very generous. We're sacrificial. We can do even more. God is waiting to pour out more blessings on your life. Maybe not monetarily, maybe in your character, like with my guitar, but he's waiting to do it. Right. Are you ready? Point number three, and finally, what's it all for? What is it for? You know, back in the text we started with, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says to command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So they take hold of the life that is truly life. What's the money for? It's for making and then giving away. Can't take it with us, so we send it ahead. We manage God's money, because it all belongs to Him anyways, right? We manage it on the earth, and then we make a heavenly investment, like we did today with the special contribution. You're doing it. You're being rich. You know, Francis Bacon was quoted as saying, Money, like manure, does no good till it's spread. Take a minute. It's okay to laugh. See, on a farm, you need it to make things grow. In and of itself, it's excrement. You probably have no use for it. But when you put it in the soil and you plant those seeds and you spread it around, you can grow something. And money can be like that. Where if you start spreading it around, it can actually do some real good and bear some real fruit. It's a tool. It's not evil in and of itself. It's only evil when we start falling in love with it. You know, the more rich that we get, the more tight-fisted we get, unfortunately. And we have to be careful and make sure that we continue to spread the cash out or the cash is going to spread our hearts out. You know, I want to close with this uh, illustration that really impacted me in a book I was reading. And uh, it, it made this reference to the Civil War. And I want you to imagine for a minute that you're back 
at the end of the Civil War. And, you know, there were a lot of Northerners that ended up in the South around that time, especially at the end of the war. And they knew the war was almost over and they were planning on getting home, getting back up to the north. But they had been down there for whatever reason. As things were calming down, um, they were trying to figure out how to get back to where they were from. And uh, one of the issues is that some of those people made a lot of Confederate money. There were different currencies uh, down south and in the north. And so they made all this Confederate money. And uh, yet they were trying to get back home where the money wasn't going to do much. And so while they're down there, they're trying to figure out what am I going to what am I going to do with all that money? And what's the only answer? You got to change it. Right. What do you do when you go to another country? What do you do? Currency exchange. Right. He wants me to switch up. Yeah. All right. Test, test. You exchange the money. Right. You go and you say, "Okay, here's my dollars and I need euros or whatever it is. And so think about it this way. You know, as you can only keep enough Confederate cash, really, to keep your short term needs met. You still need it, but in the end, it's going to be worthless. And so here's the analogy. It's the same thing with us spiritually, because we have inside knowledge that Jesus is going to come back one day. It's going to be a war and he's going to win it. And Earth's currency is going to become worthless. Right. In the end, it's not going to mean anything because everything's going to wash out at the end of times. Right. And so either we die or Jesus comes back one way or the other. It becomes useless to us. And so accumulating vast earthly treasures that you cannot possibly hold on to for the long term is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money, even though, you know, it's about to become worthless. You guys with me here? So what do you have to do? Look, there's nothing wrong with money as long as you understand its limits. And I'm going to say it again. Make as much money as you can. Make millions. We gave our special contribution last year, and we're, we're coming up on ours. We get to Africa and the Caribbean churches there. And uh, we got a check. One of the checks was for $75,000. I want that to be you next year. Wouldn't that be awesome if you could write a check for seventy-five k? Maybe one of you did today, and you just felt like, Yeah. Right. John McClellan says rich is 15 K. Maybe he wrote one today. All right. I have no idea. I'm just saying he's awesome. But you got to ask yourself, what kind of legacy am I going to leave on this earth? Am I hanging on to the Confederate cash? You know, if we give, we tear the ties of affluenza. Because we willingly give to the poor. We willingly give to the homeless. We willingly give to the sick. We're willing to give to our kids and neighbors and family and the church and the missions and other churches. And who's rich? We are. We have extra. And that means we're rich. And where's our hope? Well, it's two decisions. It's either in God or it's in wealth. And we can't serve two masters. And what's it for? Is for making as much as the Lord will allow and then giving as much as we possibly can away. I want to say to you in closing, be rich. Be as rich as you know how to be. Get help to be rich like you were today with churches in Russia and in the Nordic regions. Like many of you have been giving and sacrificially and generously without compulsion, giving and being rich for many decades. And I challenge you to take it higher to get more open, to make more and to give more and to be rich tomorrow and the next day and never stop till heaven. And we'll see each other there. May God bless the Lifeway Church. Amen. Thank you for letting me share.